Let me give you the principle that we have learned, a, a truth that we have learned here in this church. Never changes. Um, incontrovertible, incontrovertible and unchanging. And it's this. That what you find in the New Testament are the principles of the Christian life. And what you have in the Old Testament are the pictures of the Christian life. So you have the principle in the New Testament, and you have it illustrated in the Old. The illustration of it, or the picture of it. The third chapter of Daniel illustrates the principle that is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. So before I read, get into chapter 3 of Daniel, I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 18 through 20. And then we'll go over to the book of Daniel to the illustration. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God. A man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Daniel chapter 3. Some of you are in that very predicament tonight. Some of you found yourself in the predicament of 1 Peter chapter 2. You've done right as best you can, as best of your ability, you've done right. But even though you've done right, to the best of your ability, you're harshly treated. So you're going through a period of discouragement. And for you and for others like you, chapter 3 is included in God's Word because it centers on that very predicament. So I want us to look at that illustration of 1 Peter chapter 2 in the book of Daniel. When you read verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, so uh, it's pretty irrelevant. He sets this statue, this image, out on the plain of of modern-day Iraq. Now, when you read verse 1, it seems insignificant unless you read it, unless you keep in mind the context, and then it becomes very significant. If you're not careful, when you read verse 1, you'll say, well, so what? It's just another king building a monument to himself. It's just another example of idolatry. Remember what we studied last... Sunday night in chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and there was this tremendous statue. The head of the statue was gold and the chest was silver and the belly was, was bronze and the legs were iron and the feet were a mixture of pottery and iron filings. And in this image there was this stone that appeared out of nowhere, no hands made, and smote the feet of the image, and it all came tumbling down. And Daniel gave the, illust- 
gave the interpretation of the dream. He said, he, he said in fact, that the head represented the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, this is your kingdom. And hundreds of years beforehand, he described the fall of the Babylonian empire and the fall of those successive empires hundreds of years before they happened. And it may cause you to wonder, well, after Nebuchadnezzar heard that dream and he knew it to be true, why would he go out then and build a statue out of pure gold to himself? Well, he didn't go right out and do that. You've heard of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the translation of the Hebrew Scripture into Greek, which was the language of the people in that time. Thousands of years ago, a group of 70 scholars translated the Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, into Greek, which was the language of the people. And the third chapter of the Septuagint begins like this, in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. If you look back to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's dream occurred in the second year of his reign. So in essence, 16 years had passed between the dream Nebuchadnezzar had and the building of this statue. Don't you know, you can see, you don't have to be a Harvard graduate to see what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, well, all these things that Daniel said in a dream would occur, not going to occur. I mean, 16 years have elapsed and, and all of this has not come true. It's not going to happen. And so he goes out and he builds this huge statue to himself or for the people to worship in, 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 of him. And so that's where verse 2 begins. Now let me kind of bring you up to what is happening between verses 2 through 7 or 2 through 12. He calls all the people of the the high officials of Babylon together at this great statue, they were all going to worship. And at the sound of the tone, when the, when the instruments of music sound, they are to fall down and worship there. And he gives instructions explicitly concerning that. Everybody did exactly as he commanded, except for three men. I want you to pick up with me in verse 12 of chapter 3. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now there are these three men who stick out like a sore thumb because they're the only ones who didn't worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Kind of as an aside, maybe you're asking, well, where's Daniel in all this? I wondered that myself. You know, where's Daniel? I know he wasn't going to bow down and worship this image. The, the indication is, or the theory is, that he was off somewhere on the king's business. He was out of town, out of the country. The time came for them to worship these, this image, and these three men refused to do it. So verse 13 then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you're ready at the moment you hear, I'm going to give you another chance, he said, at the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigun, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a, of a furnace of blazing fire. Here's the question. What God is there, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. I like the Berkeley translation here. It says, we do not have to make a defense in this matter. Have you ever noticed that when, sometimes when we feel that we need to stand for God, we, have a, we, we feel like we need to give an explanation to the world for why we're doing it? You don't have to answer. Give an explanation. Make a defense. If you're obedient to God, you don't have to answer to anybody but to God. And they said, we don't have to make a defense concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even, look at here, even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. We believe that God is able to deliver us, but even if He doesn't, we're going to worship God. I remember an experience that happened in the life of Jesus, and He was with His disciples in the boat, and the storm came up. And after a little while, the disciples, after fighting those wind, those waves and the wind, finally woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care that we perish? I've wanted to ask that question myself, haven't you? Don't you care that I'm in this predicament? It's interesting that when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith before he rebuked the wind. And he rebuked their faith, lack of faith and said, Oh, ye of little faith, and then he rebuked the wind and calmed the wind. Now what that says is, in, es in essence, Jesus was saying, uh, Men, your problem is not the wind and the waves. Your problem is the lack of faith. And the question is not, am I able to deliver you from the waves? The question is, do you have enough faith if I don't? I've had a lot of people say to me, well, I believe that God has the power to heal. And it takes a lot of faith to believe that God will deliver one from death. God will heal in the midst of illness. I've had people say, man, didn't that person have a lot of faith? Because they claim God for His healing. Let me tell you something. It takes more faith to believe God and stay sick than it takes to believe God to get well. And these three young men said, Now we believe God is able to deliver us, but we also, may, we also believe that He may not. And whether He does or whether He doesn't, we're still going to be faithful to God. What a tremendous uh, testimony of faith. In verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered, I can imagine. His 
he must have really had a frown. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it is usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up. Now I want you to take a pencil and underline the number of times that word tie up is found. Look at this. To tie up uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason was the king's command, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot. The flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, it burned the guys who were throwing him in there. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the furnace of blazing fire. There it is again, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished and stood up in haste. He, respond, he responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound, there it is again, into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men, here it is, loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods, is like the God. He's like a God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. You come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials, all these people who were there to worship the golden image. These men saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of the men, nor was their hair, the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. They weren't the least bit touched or affected. Watch this. Then Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. By the way, that is a um, uh, picture of the pre-incarnate Christ sent his angel, delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. That's the answer to the question, who is able to deliver you? Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, provit, to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now I have seven uh, lessons. Jot them down, we're out of here. Number one. The first lesson is that God is sovereign. 
Whether the result is triumph or tragedy, God is sovereign. Now, I have an idea that when we're protected and when we're delivered, we like to talk about the sovereignty of God. When He protects us, when He delivers us, He's sovereign. But what if the bottom falls out? When the bottom falls out, some of us want to run to hide in some corner hoping nobody will ever ask us about that again. Let me tell you something. God is sovereign, period. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And that word Lord means sovereign. He, he's sovereign when He gives and He's sovereign when He takes. For whether it is tr triumph or whether it is tragedy, God's sovereignty is not affected. All God's people don't live happily ever after. Lesson number two. Our faith must not be tied to presuppositions. I have a feeling, now, am I correct? And most of the time we look in a mirror and we think we're God, not, not, in, not in an ugly sense, but we have an idea that God is going to do a certain way. He's going to respond and act a certain way because that's the way we would do it. And I have, a, I, I, just, you know, I have a presupposition sometimes that God will do a certain way because that's the way I think I would do it. And when God doesn't do it the way we think we would do it, we think God's doing nothing. Read again the book of Habakkuk and God said, you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And the very thing that caused God's people to think God was doing nothing was the very thing He was doing. I mean, we, we have our presuppositions. Our faith must not be tied to our preconceived expectations. There's two reasons why that must never be. One is because perception is not always reality. Sometimes what we think is happening is totally different than what is really happening. You know when I make the, have the biggest problem in my life? It's when I interpret what is happening to me by my understanding of what is happening to me. And the second reason why we must not tie our faith to presupposition is because God knows better about how to deal with stuff than we do. I don't know how many times I've... I've just knowing what I was going to do was the right thing turned out to be the, the wrong thing. God never makes a mistake, you see. All right, number three. Suffering is necessary whether it seems fair or unfair. There's going to be suffering whether we think it's fair or unfair. The issue is not, is this fair or unfair? All right, number three, number four. Is that three or four? Number four. Our faith must not be based on what we see God do, but what we know God is. Our faith must not be based on what we see God do, but on the basis of what we know God is. Now, if I come to a basic belief and conviction that God is gracious... And God is, uh, is love by nature. Then I'm going to understand that what happens is an act of love. Because 
He does only what is basic to His nature. And if I understand that His nature is love, then what He's doing for me may seem cruel and, and, and bad, but uh, it's an act of love. I was uh, sharing with my guys on Friday this wonderful passage in the book of Nehemiah, and God was just communicating to me one day not long ago in my time of meditation, and, and Nehemiah said, and I, I, I told them of the gracious hand of God. I told them of the gracious hand of God. Now, what do you think about when you think of a gracious hand? You think of a hand held out, extended to help or to give or to lift or to, to, to mold. I told them about, not about a clenched fist, but about a gracious hand. Now, why the hand represent what, represents what God's, God does. Why is His hand gracious? Because He's gracious. Now, if I understand that God is good and God is gracious, then I can believe that everything that God permits or causes in my life is good and gracious. And I heard uh, Chuck Swindoll, I read one of his books telling about this uh, woman in his church in, uh, out in the, the uh, Evangelical Free Church out in Fullerton. And she had this little baby who was brain damaged, a little child who was brain damaged, severely retarded. And the child could not say a word but you know, in, in conversation, but it could sing. It, it, its mother, the child's mother taught it to sing. It could sing some songs. Couldn't just talk back and forth, but could sing. And he said one morning he got to church early, and he was walking down the hall. This woman had her baby there. Her, her, this little kid had him there in Sunday school, and she was early, and so she was waiting for the teacher to arrive. And he said, as I passed by, I heard the mother and the little child singing, God is so good. God is so good to me. Now, when you've got a severely brain-damaged child in your arm and the child and the mother are singing, God is so good, you have arrived at that conclusion because you believe basically that God is good. And whatever happens, if you believe God is good, you can believe it's going to be good. All right, number five. Christ is best seen in the furnaces of life. Now, it is amazing to me that these, this king and all of these high officials in Babylon had not seen the Son of the gods until they saw him in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm just thinking as I was putting this together, that the greatest demonstration of the Lord in human life I have witnessed were, it was, were the times I saw the Lord in people's lives when they went through the furnace. I've been in some great revival meetings. I was in a revival meeting when I was a kid when 60, 60 adult men, just adult men, were saved. One of those services started at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and ended about 2.30 on Sunday afternoon. I've been in some Pentecostal revival meetings. Let me tell you where the, the, I have seen the greatest demonstration of the presence of Christ, not in great revival meetings in a Baptist church, but in the lives of saintly people who have endured the furnace. The best place to give witness to the grace of God in your life is in the furnaces of life. And sometimes, the only time, 
that people will ever see the Lord will be when they see Him in your life, in your suffering. When you're abused for doing what was right. All right, number six, we got two more. Only, the only thing that the fire burns is that which binds us. Now, I think there was a reason why he emphasized three times, and even the fourth in implication, the fact that these young men were bound is because he wanted us to see that when in the fire, the only thing that was burned in the fire, the only thing that the fire touched were the cords that bound them. Now, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that the only thing the furnace consumes in your life are the things that hinder your Christian witness. The only thing the fire consumes is that which binds us. And I think that great old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, must have had this in mind in stanza four when it says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not burn thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. The only reason God allows us in the fire is that these bondages might be burned away. And finally, deliverance is impressive whether seen by the godly or the ungodly. Deliverance is impressive, whether seen by the godly or the ungodly. I, I want to read verse 28 again. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, that's not what it said. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen to me. When you go through the test, you don't get the glory. You just become a mirror that reflects the glory of God. And it's pretty impressive to the believer or the unbeliever when he sees the glory of God reflected in the life of the person who has been in the furnace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that there are furnaces of life that refine and purify us. We don't enjoy them. We profit from them. I pray you'll speak to our heart word of comfort and encouragement. Those who are enduring the fire do the best they can still suffer. For I pray in Jesus' name. There might be some tonight, someone who needs to confess his faith in Jesus Christ, join our church, recommit himself to follow the Lord more perfectly and, and more effectively. We invite you to come while we stand to sing.